The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Penta. Today, I'm joined by Laura Callanan, founding partner at the nonprofit Upstart Collab. So Upstart is a, Upstart Collab is a, is, um, and these are Upstart's words, uh, disrupting the way creativity gets funded. We're going to talk about how it's doing this through developing impact investing for the creative economy. Welcome, Laura. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks so much, Abby. Glad to be here. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone tuning in, you can write in questions and I will try to get to them before our time is up. So Laura, a couple basic questions to start us off. First, what is Upstart Collab and what is your mission? So you summed it up beautifully at the beginning, Abby. At Upstart, we believe that creative people solve problems and we're disrupting the way that creativity gets funded by connecting the $17 trillion of socially responsible and impact capital in the United States with the 5% of the American economy that is in creative industries. We're a nonprofit, as you said. We've been really building this space, trying to be a thought leader, a catalyst, a connector. We're currently advising impact investors about opportunities in the creative economy. And we're headed towards launching the first ever vehicle for impact investing in the United States creative economy. Oh, that's that's exciting. And we'll get into that a little bit more at that, like in, in a little while. But it would be, I think, useful for our audience if you could um, maybe define for us what exactly is the creative economy and why it's an investment. I'm sorry, and why it's a impact investing theme. Um, in your annual report, you had, which you just published earlier this year, you you talked about 145 industries, five categories. Uh, if you could go into some of that, that'd be great. So the creative economy is the economy connected to art, design, culture, heritage, and creativity. And you're absolutely right. Uh, We have identified bottoms up the 145 creative industries that states and regions around the United States have already determined represent the creative economy in their local area. And, they, and states and regions do this as part of economic development planning, jobs planning. They recognize that industries like fashion and food and film and TV and architecture can be real engines of economic opportunity, jobs and wealth building. So uh, it's been very interesting. We've realized that the, the local creative economy in a particular place really is a reflection of the heritage and culture of that place. And just as, a, as an anecdote, the state of Michigan does not include food in its definition of creative economy, but the state of Louisiana does for all the reasons you can imagine around New Orleans and Creole cooking and beignets and, and all of that fun stuff. And so for us, uh, we wanted to reflect the creative economy in all 50 states, all across the United States. And so we brought together all of these industries that different locales recognize as driving their local creativity. We brought them together. And then we, we boiled them down into five key pillars of the creative economy with a, an emphasis on ethical fashion, social impact media, looking at film and TV and video games in particular, 
uh, sustainable food, which is obviously a really big topic for a lot of impact investors, and it's a big category. But for us, we're looking at the food products and experiences that are connected to culture, heritage, and community. So where the creative person intersects with that locally sourced fair trade organic supply chain, where the milk becomes cheese, right? That's where we're really thinking about uh, in the food space. And those are three key areas of the creative economy that we began focusing on because impact investors were already engaging in those spaces. The fourth category is around other creative businesses. We include disruptions to the visual art market, sustainable tourism. We're spending some time now getting uh, deep to understand what's possible in the, in the newly growing creator economy toy design, furniture making, all of those things would fall into this other category. So those first four pillars around food, fashion, media, and other creative businesses all focus on enterprises. But we also think about real estate as an investment opportunity in the creative economy, creative places, those spaces where creative work happens and where creative experiences are shared. So everything from film and TV sound stages to uh, community kitchens where small food entrepreneurs can make their, their products to theaters, galleries, those types of spaces. So uh, that's the creative economy. We've framed it in a way that we think investors can understand and a way that entrepreneurs can see themselves and, and, and start to connect with impact investors. And you use the term inclusive creative economy. Um, often. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. What, what do you mean by that? So this is something that came out of some of the thought leadership work we, we've undertaken with colleagues in the field from philanthropy, community development, impact investing, and certainly the arts and culture sector to understand what is really this intersection where uh, good things can happen through the creative industries. And obviously, that's what impact investors care about. They care about social and environmental good. They care about workers, communities, and the planet. So we wanted to be sure that as we spoke about the creative economy, we were clarifying that we were looking at that aspect of the creative economy that was really socially, socially and also environmentally engaged. So uh, we, we came together with a set of colleagues over about six or nine months and defined this concept of the inclusive creative economy anchored in three key values. Uh, one is around openness and experimentation, just realizing we need to keep learning and growing and being curious. And, and that's one real way to, to improve and, and uh, get stronger and have better solutions. The second value is around diversity and inclusion, which we all have thought a lot about, I think, in the last couple of years and hopefully are improving, uh, creating a level playing field, making sure that folks have access to opportunity, uh, and then the third value for us is a, a belief and a respect for both traditional wisdom and innovation and seeing those two things as living together and not being in any way in tension with each other. So those are some of the values that we hold when we talk about the inclusive creative economy. But the other um, aspects of impact that we, we talk about in detail in our report brings it to life. So we're trying to drive access to capital for BIPOC and women entrepreneurs who are starting companies in creative industries. We're focused on quality jobs for folks through the creative industries, especially women and BIPOC workers. We're thinking about how creative industries can anchor vibrant communities, 
and we're thinking about how to enable sustainable lives for creative people. So all of those ideas together represent for us what we call the inclusive creative economy. That's great. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I just got a frog in my throat. <laughs> um, so can we dive into some specific examples? Absolutely. Um, that'd be great. And <clears throat> first I wanted though to talk about the never community. I yes. think I'm losing my voice. So maybe uh, first talk about that and then I'll okay. be back with you in a second. Sounds great. So uh, in 2020, Upstart launched the first community of impact investors coming together around art design, culture, heritage, and creativity. There are other member communities already in the impact investing ecosystem that bring together folks who are coming from the family perspective or the foundation perspective. There are groups focused around themes like environment. And this was the first time that we were using that same type of approach to build a coalition among artists, art lovers, foundations that fund in the arts and endowed cultural institutions who wanted to really show what pioneering impact investing in the creative economy could be. Uh, we are currently advising five families, four foundations and one endowed cultural institution. Uh, since day one, they have closed and committed nearly $9 million of investments in 12 funds and companies that we've sourced and screened, brought to their attention, helped them to due diligence. They've retained the discretion about whether to make the investment or not. Uh, so we've been in an advisory role, but it's been very exciting to see these members come together around the due diligence process, co-invest on some of these opportunities. We have folks in the member community who are 100% impact investors with with professional staff who really understand this space. And we have folks who are real newcomers. They have a lifetime of experience working in arts and culture. They uh, realize this is something that's really important to them and they want to align their money with their values. That includes uh, a deep regard for arts and culture, but also some of these other uh, impact areas that I was just describing that are very people focused, very community and people focused. Um, so that's the member community. Um, the list, they're listed on our website for people who are curious, but they, they are uh, the folks that are, stand behind the six examples that we described in the impact report that we published in January that as, is also on our website. Yeah, and so that's, um, I'd love to kind of go into a couple of them. And, sure. and I think two members, uh, and tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, but Builders Initiative and Souls Grown Souls Grow Deep Foundation um, together invested nearly one, $1. 1.4 million in a company called Pashco. Yeah. And so that's black owned, a sustainable um, apparel company, socially driven, lots of great stuff. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about Pashco and what makes it a creative economy investment? Absolutely. So as you said, it's in the fashion industry. So it ticks that creative industry box right off the, the bat. Uh, in terms of some of the other impact measures that we pay attention to, I, I said we were trying to drive capital to BIPOC and women entrepreneurs. You already mentioned Pasco is led by the Black fashion designer, Patrick Robinson, formerly the creative director at The Gap, Imperia Armani, Perry Ellis. So a really accomplished mid-career designer and business leader. He's the person that you'd bring in if your company was in trouble. So he would help turn it around both on the creative side and on the business side. And about, I guess, five, six years ago now, Patrick decided to take all of that lifetime of experience and launch his own label, specifically at the, at the start, 
with an emphasis on the the dirtiness of the fashion industry, the fact that the apparel industry can be highly polluting, uh, very bad for the environment. And that was one of the things he started to think about from the beginning. So part of the philosophy at the start was if you had the right clothes in your closet, you'd have less clothes in your closet, and that's that's better for the environment. And uh, that the clothes could be made in a more sustainable, regenerative way. So pre-COVID, Pasco clothes were made at ethical and sustainably certified factories in Asia. As you can imagine, it was very hard to get product from Asia to the United States during the pandemic, especially in the the first part of the pandemic. And as Patrick describes himself, as as a Black business leader in the worst part of the pandemic, seeing communities really struggling, he felt like he had to do something about it. The company did a pivot, onshored all of its manufacturing back to the United States and developed a new uh, distributed manufacturing model called Community Made, which allows, instead of uh, for one big factory, Community Made allows for smaller skilled worker pods in communities, rural communities, urban communities all around the United States. The first pod opened in New York, still while the pandemic was going on, and hired the seamstresses and the tailors who were out of work when Broadway was dark. So they used to work sewing costumes for Hamilton. Now they were sewing clothes for Pasco. That was the first pod. The second pod was opened as a result of the investment that you just mentioned from the Upstart members and in partnership with one of the investors, the Souls Grown Deep Foundation. So Souls Grown Deep is a small and growing foundation. They are built around a collection of work by African-American artists, and they are committed to the legacies of those artists, the communities where those artists come from. They are deaccessioning the artwork in their collection, placing it into major museums. They, t- they describe it as rewriting art history. So you can go see Black artists' work at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York the next time you visit. Uh, and as they do that, They're being paid for the artwork and their financial endowment is growing. So they've asked Upstart to help them find opportunities that align with their deep commitment to social justice, their focus on the African-American community, their commitment to the Deep South. Uh, And among the artists that Souls Grown Deep represents are the G's Ben Quilters of Alabama. So the second pod that uh, Pasco opened is in Boykin, Alabama, home of the G's Ben Quilters bringing dignified work to third and fourth generation quilters in a community that hasn't seen new job development literally in generations. And the third pod is uh, coming online in the next couple months. It's going to be on a Native American reservation in South Dakota. And there are other pods in the pipeline after that. So it's just a fantastic example of uh, bringing dignified work to communities that have the assets of creativity that have this amazing skill. Pasco's new tagline is clothes made like they matter. And they want the customers to understand that they're not just buying from Pasco because the clothes look great, but there is a connection between uh, the customer and the maker. So that's just one example of a, a company in our portfolio. It's great. And it, it's, it, and it clearly has a, a social impact and an environmental impact, which is actually pretty cool. And and it's spelled P-A-S-H-K-O for anyone who wants to, right? Did I spell it right? Uh, P-A-S-K-H-O. Yes, you did. I, okay. I <laughs> Good. So if anyone wants to go find it, they, they can. Um, and another investment, which is quite different, is in uh, community investment management. So that's yeah. a private debt fund. Um, 
can you just tell us a little bit more about what that fund is and why it's a creative economy? Absolutely. And those are two great examples. They're almost at opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Pasco is a young company just starting out, raising outside capital for the first time, growing by leaps and bounds. Community investment management is one of the, the blue chip impact investing funds that's in the portfolios of many impact investors, particularly those who have been part of this movement for the last five or 10 years. Uh, Community investment management is a socially responsible fintech fund. They lend into platforms that lend to small businesses, to students, uh, to to individuals who are are looking for personal loans. And they do it as as an antidote, as an alternative to payday lending, or other much more predatory forms of lending, including some of those that can be found online. So uh, community investment management uh, is all about making access to capital available for women, for, for BIPOC individuals, and for returning veterans, particularly in their small business lending category. Uh, one of the founders of community investment management is a guy named Michael Hokinson who's a very creative person himself. He works as a visual artist, as well as being an impact investing leader. Uh, He's a snappy dresser, right? So he's someone who's very tuned in to the creative economy. And when Mike and I first met, now probably four or five years ago, he heard what Upstart was talking about. Uh, He learned about the 145 creative industries that we had identified and uh, were holding up as our creativity lens that allows impact investors to see if their portfolio is aligned with the creative economy. Um, And so Mike said, great, we're going to put our small business lending portfolio through your creativity lens. And let's just see how many of our borrowers are uh, starting and growing businesses and creative industries. They've done this twice now in the last five years. Consistently, 25% of the small businesses borrowing through community investment management are in the creative industries. And again, this is uh, the the focus, the priority, the impact thesis for community investment management is access to capital for BIPOC women and returning veterans. They didn't go out to I, to find uh, businesses in the, in the creative industries. That just happened very naturally, and it reflects the correlation that Upstart's been seeing that uh, women and BIPOC founders are often starting businesses in creative industries. Uh, by our um, research. of women-led businesses in the United States and 38% of BIPOC-led businesses in the United States are in creative industries. And our our belief, our hypothesis, is that creative industries recognize and reward originality and and merit. Uh, So you don't need the same types of um, uh, table stakes to start a business in, in a creative industry. You don't need a PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford and you don't need the same amount of capital that you would need if you, you were uh, starting a software company or a tech platform where you expect to have the hockey stick of lots and lots of losses as you're building and scaling the company and then some revenue over time. Businesses and creative industries, typically like, like a Pasco, they're making clothes and selling them from day one. And so that allows them to really have uh, a lot of organic growth which can be an easier way for some entrepreneurs to to get a foothold and to get started. So uh, we're excited that community investment management now broadcasts 
that the creative economy is 25% of its small business portfolio. They produce a snapshot report that highlights this fact and uh, examples from their portfolio every year. They tell us that after their gender lens spotlight, it is the second most requested spotlight report. And it's been uh, asked for and read by 150 gatekeepers and investors who are all part of the community investment management universe. So they're an evangelist with us and an ambassador for this idea. And they're an example of how the creative economy can be hiding in plain sight within some of the funds uh, that impact investors already know and are working with. Um, so I, I want to talk about another uh, investment, and it's kind of sort of related, but not really, because it, it has to do with loans, but Honeycomb Credit. Uh, and, and you had some really exciting news earlier yes. this week, um, which was uh, about a loan participation fund that you developed with Honeycomb. Um, and so this is a crowdfunding platform that, and you can say this better than me, but just briefly, it, it provides loans to local businesses that really can't get financing anywhere else. So um, yeah, tell us a little bit about this, how it all came together and, um, and what you're hoping will happen from this fund. So uh, we started talking to Honeycomb Credit about two years ago, and we were interested in their crowdfunding platform because 80% of the businesses borrowing on their platform, taking loans from the crowd through the Honeycomb platform, 80% of those businesses are in creative industries. So again, we just, we go where the entrepreneurs are and we try to lift this up so that impact investors can get involved. And just to clarify, you know, a lot of people think of crowdfunding as a place for donations, uh, donors choose, for example, or global giving, where they think of crowdfunding as you get a reward, you know, you back this film or this creative project and you get a t-shirt or you get a CD or something like that. So we're talking about uh, crowdfunding, but where individuals are making really many loans to entrepreneurs to help those entrepreneurs grow and scale their, their companies and their ideas. And you're right that uh, about half the, the businesses that successfully raised capital on the Honeycomb platform were previously declined for a small business loan or some other sort of loan. The way Honeycomb is able to participate and support these borrowers where others can't is they are sort of the capital one for small business borrowers. They're able to evaluate the risk with a level of uh, care and specificity that, so that they understand that the risk they're taking and then the interest rate that the borrower pays reflects the, that level of risk ranging between six and, and, and 14% are the interest rates you'll see on the Honeycomb platform. Uh, so when we started to talk to the Honeycomb folks, they said, you know, we've been, we have this idea. They had a kernel of an idea of what's now become the loan participation fund. And they wanted to attract capital from foundations. Many foundations, as you know, are active as impact investors. Honeycomb wanted to attract capital from foundations onto the platform to invest alongside the crowd which fits really nicely with the, the movement now within impact investing for community-driven investing, where many foundations are asking community members to help them make investment decisions. So what the, the way the Loan Participation Fund works is the foundation puts um, capital forward, at least $250,000, can be more, and they designate with Honeycomb uh, is there a geographic region? A lot of the foundations we work with are place-based. So if you're a foundation that's based in Chicago, 
you're going to be inclined to want to support creative businesses and entrepreneurs in your hometown. So uh, the foundation can designate the geographic region. They can designate, uh, obviously, we want them to designate businesses and creative industries, but then they can also designate something about the borrowers, that the borrowers come from low-income communities, that the borrowers have certain demographic features. And so uh, we've had three foundations so far, the Souls Grown Deep Foundation, focusing on nine states in the Deep South, uh, the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, uh, which is in Jacksonville, Florida. So they're focused in in, uh, the the geographic footprint around their hometown of Jacksonville. And the A.L. Mailman Foundation, which has buddied up with Souls Grown Deep and is also supporting uh, entrepreneurs across nine states in the Deep South. So we have uh, another foundation who's close to the finish line and hopefully we'll be announcing soon that they're participating as well. And we're just really excited because the crowd really is calling the shots here. The foundations put the money forward, but if the campaign doesn't close, the campaign doesn't reach its minimum target, then that foundation money doesn't actually get deployed. And it's all the other investors, the investors in the crowd that actually decide through their votes and the loans that they make if the foundation money goes to work. Um, These businesses are your local coffee shop, your local bakery, uh, the the local furniture maker, really community-based businesses. And the team at Honeycomb is uh, takes you back to the days of It's a Wonderful Life, where Jimmy Stewart you know, knew his neighbor down the street and knew they'd be, be good for the loan. That's the kind of ethos that Honeycomb is trying to bring back to, to lending. That's great. Um, I have a question from Hal, one of our listeners, who's asking if you help with marketing, I, I would imagine, with, with any of these companies that you invest in. Is that... Is that- so- so we don't help with marketing, with the exception of talking about them on uh, conferences and web webcasts like today, yeah. and obviously featuring them in our thought leadership, our research reports, the work that we do. Um, we, as a nonprofit, are advising these other nonprofits in our member community. So we are uh, sourcing and screening the opportunities, bringing them to the attention of these investors, and then... Obviously, we, we think these are great opportunities. We want more investors to pay attention to them, which is why we published an impact report to sort of share these stories right. and why we're excited to have the opportunity to talk with Barron's Live today. That's great. Um, so I want to get to the, um, and we're quickly running out of time, but I want to get to um, uh, the, the new fund that you're, start, that yeah. you're raising and, and how you're shifting your, your approach really to 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 raise a fund. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what that's all about and how and how how you're shifting your approach? Absolutely. So this is what we call our inclusive creative economy strategy. And we call it a strategy or a portfolio because it will invest both in funds, like we were just talking about community investment management, funds that have 20% at least, likely much more of their portfolio in creative industries as well as direct investments into companies like Pasco that we were just describing, right? So uh, so it's not a fund of funds, it's not a fund per se. And we're doing it in partnership with Impact As- Assets, who folks should know, uh, they are a 10-year-old $2.3 billion donor-advised fund platform that has really shown donor-advised funds the potential for them to invest, to make impact investments in addition to making grants. So they're the perfect partner for us as we seek to attract 
investments from foundations, donor advised funds, uh, public charity art organizations, and, and other types of, of charitable capital. Uh, so we are currently talking with anchor investors now. We are headed towards a first close in the fall. And we're very excited because there are examples now already in the UK, Europe, even in Africa and Latin America, where there are funds that are 100% focused on impact investing and that are 100% focused on creative industries and multiple industries across the creative economy. The United States, which has been a leader in many aspects of impact investing, is, I'm sorry to say, a follower in this. So this will be the first time that there is a strategy like this, national in scope, that allows impact investors to live their values around art, design, culture, heritage, and creativity. And for Upstart, the transition or, or what's different about it is we're moving from the advisory role we play now with our members, where ultimately the discretion and the decision to invest stays with each family or foundation. And we're asking investors to back the, the expertise, the strategic vision, uh, recognizing that Upstart has a phenomenal deal pipeline of now going on 300 opportunities, funds and, and companies that we will be able to select from to put this, this portfolio strategy to work. Yeah, that's quite a, that is quite a pipeline uh, and very exciting to have the first fund out there. Um, I, I think we do have one time for one more question. And I, I did want to ask you about the work that you've been doing with museums sure. and other cultural institutions just to focus on impact investing in the creative economy as something that they can do with their endowments. Absolutely. Um, and I understand that you formed a study group last, uh, I guess, over a year now, right? Yeah. In October 2020. We, we had started uh, engaging with museums and other large endowed cultural institutions, which by our count hold more than $50 billion in their endowments across the country. We started engaging with them uh, in the fall of 2019. And, and actually, we had planned to convene the trustees and CEOs of 10 of the largest art museums in uh, early April 2020. So that meeting did not happen, but we had been working towards starting to really initiate this conversation with museum, museum leaders. In October of 2020, we did launch what we call our Cultural Institution Study Group. And it currently has 22 art museums uh, and other cultural institutions with a combined uh, endowment uh, responsibility of around $5.4 billion of endowments represented by these 22 institutions. And they're fabulous. You know, they are all leaning in, learning about how to invest their values. They're really driven to uh, align their endowment investment strategy with their institution's deeply held values around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's not by accident that we launched this in fall of 2020, coming out of the summer of, of 2020 and all of the uh, energy that was around addressing issues related to structural racism. So this group has been great. People, are, people who are in the group, these museums are changing their investment policy statements. They're making commitments to engage uh, diverse fund managers. They're doing all of the right things to live their values. Uh, building off our learning through this group, Upstart working with the Association of Art Museum Directors and the Black Trustees Alliance of Museums fielded the first ever survey asking art museums across the United States where they stood, where, you know, what level of interest and activity they had regarding impact investing. And uh, we're crunching the data now and we'll have that report released in late June. So excited to see that, that 
um, finally, cultural institutions are beginning to follow in the footsteps that foundations and universities have been leaving for the last 20 years and uh, fully embrace their stated values as, as organizations. Right, with their investments as well as what they do day to day. So interesting. I, okay, I'm going to ask one little question uh, from Eric, who a listener who um, said that he'd love to get his community and region more involved with Upstart Collab. And what's what are the good ways to do that? If we have a website. Uh, the My email and the email of every team member is on the website with our bios. Uh, write to us. Introduce yourself. Let's figure out how we can how we can be helpful. That's great. Good. Well, thank you, Laura. That's uh, this is so interesting. Thank you for letting us letting us know what the creative economy is all about, why it matters, and different impact investing strategies. Thanks, Abby. Um, thanks. And to our audience, please join us again on Monday when Barron's senior managing editor Lauren Rublin and deputy editor Ben Levinson discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe and healthy. Bye bye. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.